Don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. At the end of the 20th century, there lived a philosopher and a poet. He died in 1991, but his words live on. And I got to read them to you because I think they present a pretty faithful summary of what work is like in our modern secular culture. He said this, Congratulations, today is your day. You're off to great places, you're off and away. You'll be on your way up, you'll be seeing great sights, you'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest. These are the words of Dr. Zeus. And I think they capture quite faithfully uh, the way that we've been taught to think about work in our modern secular culture. In our world today, we're taught to think about work through the lens of accumulation or accomplishment. It's about seeing work as a means to an end or as an end in itself. If work is a means to an end, we treat work as a place we suffer through, not celebrate, uh, to get us money or be able to purchase experiences or buy things. That's if work is a means to an end. On the other end of the spectrum, if work is an end in itself, we think of work as the primary place in life from which I tap meaning, the place where I get my identity in life, my meaning, my value, and my worth. And both of these, they reduce the beauty of work and they elevate the anxiety of work. Accumulation and accomplishment. These are the pillars through which we're invited in a modern secular culture to think about what we do with our nine to five. And commentators, they're calling this hustle culture. You might've heard that phrase before. Hustle culture is a work culture that celebrates tiredness, it scorns life balance, and it uh, reduces our picture of work um, to something akin to thinking of ourselves like this, that I am just the end result of what I do, or my value and my worth is tied uh, to my ability to accomplish or accumulate. Or I'm failing at life unless I'm winning in the workplace. Elon Musk, the tech giant billionaire, he sort of champions this culture. And in 2018, he posted a tweet uh, where he was talking about what work-life balance looked at, looks like at Tesla. And he said this, he said, there are easier places to work, but nobody ever changed the world on a 40-hour week. No. You've got to hustle, you've got to grind, and you've got to seize the day if you're going to work in this world. That's the narrative. And here's the question. What does that do to us? Um, well, for most of us, it just means that there's like this background hum of anxiety to all of life. I don't know if you felt this. I feel this in my life all the time. Uh, it's that incessant need to check my phone to see if there's an update from work. It's this, um, this gut-wrenching desire that I've got to zero out my inbox. It's this perfectionistic tendency uh, to work on that document to the nth degree, even though I could have said it was done, you know, two hours ago. For others, it actually means we're on the road to burnout. BuzzFeed article released sort of, I think, two years ago, it tapped into this and it said that millennials have been dubbed the burnout generation. Um, you don't have to be a corporate CEO anymore to be at risk of burnout. You could just be a mum. You could just be a chaplain. You could just be a painter. You could just be a writer. 
And that's not to denigrate what those roles require. It's just to say that right now the culture we live in and the hustle culture that pervades the ether that we swim in, it actually has a result. And it means that there's either a background hum of anxiety in our lives or we might be on our way to burnout. In 2019, the World Health Organization, they put burnout in their disease classification index. Now, burnout happens when you reach the point of exhaustion, but you've got no choice but to keep going, not just for days or weeks or months, but for years. And here's the point, hustle culture, it begets a type of life which reduces our vision of work and reduces our enjoyment of life. And here's what I wanna to say to us today. I wanna to say to us that the Christian story, it has a circuit breaker for hustle culture. That God himself has given his people a tool to resist a view of work, which sees it simply as a way to accumulate or accomplish. In this series, we're asking this question. How does the kingdom of God inform my work and transform my work? And the answer I want to unpack today is this, Sabbath. Sabbath is one of God's pieces of technology and tools that he invites us to use to transform our work under the kingship of Jesus. So I want to unpack two things today. One, what Sabbath says yes to, and two, what Sabbath says no to. So first, what Sabbath says yes to. There's a quote from an Old Testament scholar which has haunted me ever since I read it. A few years ago, I started digging into this topic of Sabbath because I didn't want to just know about it. I wanted to practice it. And this Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, he's got this phrase and it's just haunted me ever since. He says, uh, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. I'll just repeat that. People who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. Now, how can that be true? Well, I've discovered it to be true in my life because Sabbath is a spiritual discipline. And as a spiritual discipline, like all other spiritual disciplines, it's, a, it's power comes not from believing in it, but by practicing it, by embodying the discipline. I like what Eugene Peterson said. He said that Sabbath keeping is not a matter of belief, but a use of a tool, time. Not an exercise of the heart and mind, but of the body. Sabbath keeping is not devout thoughts or heart praise, but simply removing our bodies from circulation one day a week. What's he saying? He's actually saying that Sabbath is terrible if you leave it as an idea, but it is life-giving and powerful if you implement it as a practice. For the ancient Jew, their way of life, it was guided by what we call the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. The Torah was sort of like a manifesto for ancient Israel. It taught them how to live in holiness before God and blessing for the world. And they contained 613 commands. And one of those commands is a command to Sabbath. The first time the command is given is in Exodus 20. Exodus 20 verse 8 says these words. It says, remember the Sabbath day. Now, what's fascinating about this command is not the command itself, but the reasoning that the command cites to motivate you to do it. The reasoning given is because God himself kept the Sabbath. Exodus 28 to 10 says this, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor anyone else in your sphere. That's a paraphrase right there. And then he says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, 
the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So what's going on here? Well, the writer, he's looking back to Genesis 2. And Genesis 2 is the first time in the scriptures that the word Sabbath gets used, but we don't see it in our English, English translations. Uh, in, in Genesis 2, God's just finished forming the heavens and the earth, which if you ask me, it's a pretty decent work week. He's just finished forming the heavens and the earth, and then he sits back on the seventh day, and Genesis 2.2 reads this. It says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And that word rested is the Hebrew word Shabbat, from which we get our word Sabbath. It's the same word that the writer of Exodus and Moses uses uh, when he's talking about the command to Sabbath. The first being to Sabbath in the world is God. So here's what Exodus 20 is saying. It's saying that there is a divine precedent for rest. That if anyone has motivation to rest and rejuvenate and heal, it's the Christian. If God rests, so should you. If God stops, why can't you? The imagery is beautiful. It sets up this rhythm, this cadence, this beat to what it means to be human. To be human in the Christian story is to be someone who works well and rests well, who rests well and works well, who works well and rests well. And I could go on, but that's the picture. It's this dance. It's this beat. It's this rhythm. Sabbath says yes to this rhythm. And this rhythm, it's the sweet spot for being human. So how do we Sabbath? And I think this is the million dollar question. See, different writers, they've got different opinions on this. One of my favorite writers, Eugene Peterson, he says that the two pillars that should guide you as you think about Sabbath, it should be praying and playing. And he gets that from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, which we'll look at in a moment. Contemplating on God and letting your heart well up in worship. Contemplating on creation and letting yourself enjoy it. Praying and playing. A more modern writer, more recent writer, I should say, John Mark Comer, his two pillars for thinking about how he and his family want to spend Sabbath day, it's rest and worship. What is it as an activity? Does it, does it lead you to rest? What is it as an activity? Does it, does it lead you to worship? And I really like both of these pillars. I think they're helpful. I think they're biblical. I think they're specific enough that they actually give us some goalposts, but they're, they're flexible enough that they make room for the different life stages that all of us will find ourselves at. Um, let me talk to you about it like this. Let me talk about my, my story. What's worshipful and restful for me? Well, Sabbath rolls around. This has been a really pr powerful practice in mine and my wife's life. Um, what do we do? We, we wake up late. We sleep in. No to-do list. Uh, nowhere to be. We try and sleep in. What do we do next? We, we might make a nice cup of filter coffee and make that slowly, enjoy that slowly, uh, pray together, read the scriptures, um, think about the day. Um, there's no major to-do list. What else do we like to do? We, we love enjoying creation, spending time with friends, going for a slow walk or cooking a meal that we've been longing to cook but haven't had time for. Um, I love reading novels on Sabbath. Um, these are really nice. But what's not restful and what's not worshipful? Well, for me, it's doing errands. It's staying glued to my phone screen. It's binge watching candy-like TV series that you never feel good after. You know, one episode might be nice, but 10, you just don't feel rested after that. 
And something that I actually try not to do on my Sabbath is read material that helps me preach better or think better. Why? Because I'm so good at letting that be an exercise in trying to accomplish something through what I do for work. Uh, and it's just not a good thing for me to spend doing on my Sabbath. Anything that helps me appreciate that I'm limited, that God is God, that this world is beautiful, that though there's burdens we experience, that most of life is a blessing, that life itself is a blessing. I want to do those things on my Sabbath. And anything that orients me towards hustle or achieving or producing or accumulating, I want to steer clear of that. And so what is it for you? What can you spend doing on your Sabbath that's worshipful and restful? Now, there might be an objection, you know, I call this the legalistic objection. You might say, Alex, you know, you speak as if Sabbath is something we have to do. Do I really need to do Sabbath? Uh, And I just want to lean in and say that the invitation to do Sabbath comes because of the life of Jesus and the practices of Jesus. So what did Jesus think about Sabbath? Well, you go to Mark 2 and Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees say, why would you basically lift a finger on the Sabbath? And Jesus says these beautiful words. He says, the Sabbath was not made, sorry, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. And a lot of people think that in that phrase, Jesus is saying, the Sabbath is expendable. We don't need to do it. It's superfluous. It's something optional extra for the really elite Christians. But he's not saying that. He's actually saying that the Sabbath is a gift. It's an invitation. What is he doing? Jesus is not rejecting the Sabbath as a burden nor is he reinstating it as a command. He's reminding his listeners that it is a gift of delight that God invites his people to experience. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that you're not sinning if you don't Sabbath. Just chill, we're good, you know, it's, it's okay. You're not sinning, but it, it might be probable that you're not flourishing. You're not sinning if you don't Sabbath, but you might not be thriving. And so my encouragement would would be to you, how can you implement Sabbath? You know, we've just entered into a lockdown and life might feel chaotic. And you might say, look, I'm just trying to survive. And I would say, I get that. But that to me is not a cry against Sabbath. It's a cry for Sabbath. Um, Maybe you've got kids at home. And I just want to say, I get that. Um, Again, I'd want to lean in and say, if you're not intentional with the time that you have, technology, the internet, your kids, everything in this world will be intentional for you. And Sabbath is an invitation to take back your calendar for the glory of God. And so I want to encourage you, how can you get creative through the pillars of rest and worship? Sabbath says yes to God's wisdom and yes to the rhythm of creation. But Sabbath isn't just about saying yes to God's rhythm as his images. It's also about saying no to ways of thinking about ourselves, about others and about the world that would diminish the identity that God gives us as images of him. What do I mean? Well, the command to Sabbath, it's repeated twice in Exodus, um, twice, once in Exodus 20, and again in Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15. The fascinating thing about the command in Deuteronomy is that when it's repeated, it is almost identical to the command in Exodus. Like Moses' words in Exodus, it says something like this, hey, keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath is holy to the Lord, Everyone in town needs to keep it. You, your sons, your daughters, your servants, everyone there, all your livestock. But then you get to verses 14 and 15 and it says, here's the reasoning. So that your male and female servants may rest as you do. 
Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Did you see that? In Exodus, the Sabbath is grounded in the creation story. But in Deuteronomy, Sabbath is grounded in Israel's story of liberation from slavery in Egypt. What's going on? Well, what's going on is that the Bible is making an argument about what the Sabbath says yes to and what the Sabbath says no to. The Sabbath says yes to the rhythm for which God made the world. But Deuteronomy tells us that Sabbath keeping says no to thinking of oneself as a slave caught up in Pharaoh's economy. See, here's the Cliff Notes version of the Jewish story. Begins back when Joseph was in Egypt, the, the Jews grew large in number. And because of their great number, Pharaoh freaked out and started to enslave them. And he began using them to build his cities. They became his brick makers and his pyramid builders. They became his slaves. And as slaves, they don't get a day off. And as slaves, they're in this perpetual cycle until they lay their head down and die. They are recast as something less than images of God, made to serve this rapacious and tyrannical leader who never says, well done, who never says, that's a good job. He just says, more work, more bricks, more quotas. Read Exodus 5 and you'll get a glimpse of the kind of tyrannical leader that Pharaoh was and what that meant for the identity of God's people in Egypt. It's a life in which their value is determined by what they produce. And is that not relevant? It's a life in which their primary identity is not as an image of God, but as a slave to the system. And the system is built around one word, more. In Exodus, the command looks back to Eden, but in Deuteronomy, the command looks back to Egypt. It's saying that Sabbath is an act of delight in the way that God made us. And it's an act of defiance against the system of more typified by Pharaoh. So here's why this is important. It's important because Pharaoh is not just a historical problem. He survived down throughout the centuries. I love how one writer put it. He said this, that Pharaoh is that guilty feeling in your gut that voice in the back of your head screaming at you, work harder, work faster, work longer, produce, produce, produce. You're only as good as your daily quota. This is not a Jewish history. This is a human problem. All of us find ourselves believing the lie that we are what we do or we are what we own. So we break our backs to win at life, to succeed, to crush it. Now, many of us have heard the phrase, you know, burning the midnight oil, and we think that's just a modern phrase. But actually, that phrase comes from an English poet in 1635. Francis, I can't pronounce his last name, but he, he writes this. He says, we spend our midday sweat on midnight oil. We tie the night in thought, the day in toil. That was back then. What about now? Well, I think we, we find this narrative all around us when we say particular things about work. One thing that I heard growing up was, Alex, you just got to get ahead in life. That is a terrible way to live your life. Ahead, ahead of who? Ahead of what, God? His rhythm for you? Ahead of your friends and their love for you? Ahead of your family? What do you want to get ahead of? Are you there yet? That's one narrative, the narrative of Pharaoh in our modern culture. Another one that I 
grew up hearing. Uh, actually, I didn't grow up hearing this. this. This comes to us when we discuss what we're doing at work. People say things like, hey, I just want to get ahead and on top of what I'm doing. If I just get on top of this particular task, if I just get on top of... And usually the people who say these things are always saying these things. I find myself saying this all the time. And what I want to say is this is a type of slavery. This is a type of slavery. Slavery to the idols of accumulation and accomplishment. And here's my question. How are you going with it? Is it working? Are you tired? Do you want a better story? Have you got on top of everything yet? Or are you still saying you need to get on top of it? And here's the good news. The good news is that Sabbath is God's gift to help you resist this. It's not a silver bullet or a one-stop solution or a three-day crash course. It's a rhythm of life that God invites you into to inhabit in order to protest the reduction of your humanity to what you accumulate or what you accomplish. Rich Viadas in a book called The Deeply Formed Life, he said it like this. He said that Sabbath is not just rest from making things. It's rest from the need to make something of ourselves. So the question is, do you know that rest? Do you know the rest, the rhythmic one invited to you by Sabbath and the relational one invited to you by Jesus? The rest, which frees you not to have to make something of yourself, particularly through the work that you do in this world. Sabbath helps you say yes to that. Sabbath helps you say no to the idols of accumulation and accomplishment. So as I finish, I want to just ask, if you're a Christian, how can you take the invitation of Sabbath and implement one meaningful step this week to inhabit this rhythm that God invites you into? How can you do that? You might have to get creative. You might find it difficult. You might find it hard. You might find that when you try it, you get withdrawals and you want to check your phone and try and respond to an email or whatever it looks like. But I want to ask you, how can you take one meaningful step towards implementing Sabbath to say yes to God's rhythms and no to the slavery of the idols of accumulation and accomplishment this world offers? But if you're not a Christian, I want to make this point that Sabbath is a practice for Christians and Sabbath is a pointer to a deeper restlessness that all of us are born with. Sabbath says all that we need rest, but that at some deep level, we're all restless. And the Christian story would say that that, that restlessness, is it, a, it is a result of us turning away from the God who made us for himself. And what a restless heart does is it thinks of work as the place in which it can get meaning, its identity, value, and worth. And what that does for work is it positions work as something it was never meant to be and seeks from work that which only God could have ever given. Meaning, value, identity, and worth. And so maybe you find yourself on the outside looking into the Christian story and you say, I feel restless. I've lived enough time in this world to know that I'm not I'm not winning at life. I, I can't find my identity. I, I'm not succeeding in the way that I've been told that if I just do this or if I just do, it's not working. And I just want to say to you, Jesus offers you rest today. He offers you relationship with himself, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, 
not because of what you've accumulated or accomplished. He just says, I love you. And the Christian story says that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary at great cost to himself to make a way for you to be atoned for and welcomed back, reconciled into the Father heart of God. And so I want to invite you today, not just to experience the rest of Sabbath as a practice, but experience the rest of relationship with God. And so as we do that, I just want to pray. And as I pray, I want, you, I want to invite you to echo these words in your heart. Anyone can pray this prayer, whether you've been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, or you've never known Jesus Christ at all. It's just, God, thank you for what you've done. Sorry for how I've lived. Help me live and follow after you. And so if that's you, I just want to invite you, pray with me now. God, thank you that you invite me to rest. Thank you for Sabbath as a practice. Thank you that Sabbath points to my need to rest by relationship with you. Sorry for living independently from you. Sorry for my restless heart that latches onto anything to find meaning, value, and worth. Please help me follow you. Experience your rest, your relationship, your beauty, and your goodness. I give you my heart, my allegiance, my trust, and my life. In Jesus' name, amen.